You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. for the last several months, then you know that we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're getting near the end. And what we've said all along is that as the preacher has been working his way through everything that he sees under the sun, what he finds is that in all of it, he comes up wanting. More knowledge only created more heartache. Pleasure was fun, but it was fleeting. It didn't last. Money and possessions are easily stolen from you by the grave. He found out that you can't hand wisdom down through your bloodline. And he said, every time I look to the places where justice ought to be, all I find is injustice. And the list goes on and on. But what we've been saying is that the point of all this, the point of why he's been detailing all of these things that we know from our own human experience, we know them to be true here under the sun. The reason he's been doing this is so that we would take our eyes off of what we see here under the sun and cast them a bit higher on the one who presides over it. He's been saying over and over again that everything here under the sun is going to leave you wanting. If you're putting your ultimate worth in things that will pass away, then your worth will pass away with them. He's saying if you're putting your eternal meaning and purpose in anything other than God, it's like trying to catch mist. You can see it out there, but when you reach out your hand, you can't really grab it. You can't control it. You can't contain it. It's all vanity and chasing after the wind. And today we arrive at chapter 11, which is really about knowledge. And this is a theme that he's come to before. It's something that we've covered already. But previously, the preacher told us that the more you know, the more heartache that you can expect. The more vexation and sorrow is going to come. But today, he's not talking about knowledge acquisition, but instead he's talking about knowledge limitation. He's talking about living skillfully or wisely, considering the fact that we do not know everything. 
There are things that we know and there are things that we don't know. And he says a wise life is going to be lived understanding that. He's giving us advice for how to live our lives considering the fact that we are not God. And we are not privy to all the things that he knows. And I think that this is a message that we need to be reminded of. Because to be perfectly honest with you, all of us in here this morning, on a Sunday morning, are probably going to acknowledge that. We'll agree with that statement. I'm not God. You're not God. We get that. We do that on Sunday morning. But then we go out and live our lives Monday through Saturday as if that statement is not true. But today, what our passage is looking for, it's trying to tell us, is that true joy is found in the knowledge of our limitation. Because we don't think it's wise to live in limitation. We don't think it's wise to live in a way that God is saying is best for us. And this is the main point this morning. A joyful life is found by conforming yourself by faith to your God-given constraints in long view faithfulness to Christ. A joyful life is found by conforming yourself by faith to your God-given constraints in long view faithfulness to Christ. God alone is creator and we are his creatures. And the preacher is telling us is, is, is if, if we live our lives that way, if we live our lives in light of that fact, then your life will be filled with faithfulness and joy. In our text today, it, it continues uh, the proverbial meditations that we saw last week. In chapter 10, the preacher seemed to be distinctly acknowledging and observing the brokenness of creation. In all these quick proverbs, he seemed to be detailing the disorder of this world here under the sun. What he spent the entire book telling us, he spent a chapter using proverbs to tell us again. But beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, he seems to shift focus to giving wisdom for how we ought to live wise lives given this brokenness. And very importantly for our passage, given our lack of God-like knowledge. He's saying, you don't know what's going to happen. So live your life accordingly. Live your life faithfully. Four times in the first six verses of our text, he says, you don't know. He says it in verse 2, he says it twice in verse 5, and then he says it again in verse 6. And he's really putting something in our face that we should all know to be true already, that we don't know how everything's going to pan out. And a life lived skillfully or a life lived wisely is going to be distinctly aware of that fact. A person who's living wisely is going to understand that there are a lot of things that they don't understand. A person who's living wisely is going to know that there are a lot of things that they do not know. And they're not going to live their lives pretending like they have insight that only God has. See, many commentators believe uh, that his advice here at the beginning of chapter 11 has a specifically a financial tint to it. And while it seems that this could be applied just as easily to Christian faithfulness generally um, as it is con con uh, applied to Christian finances, there does seem to be a, a focus on monetary faithfulness. But the preacher, what he's doing here is he's really just dropping helpful tidbits, little pieces of advice to assist us in living wise and faithful lives given the fact that we don't have God's knowledge. And so he says things like, because you don't know everything, put in the hard work of slow growth. 
right? In verse one, the preacher tells us that investing in what may seem like a pointless or minuscule or maybe even insignificant thing now, as ridiculous as throwing bread out into the water, may turn out to be helpful in days down the road. And so he's talking about investment. He's talking about working for something that may not really bring you a profit for a very long time. And this fits in with the wisdom of Scripture generally, right? The Proverbs tell us that a wise person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. Investment in what we're faithful, uh, excuse me, when we're faithful with what's been given to us, we are more likely to be able to leave something of meaning to those that are going to come after us. Investment and intentionality and slow growth is what faithfulness looks like. Parents, it's why uh, your kids may not remember every family devotional that you ever do with them, but it's the years of singing and praying and reading scripture together that are going to form your children for decades down the road. It's the slow growth of faithfulness. You're investing in who they're going to be in years to come. And that folds into his next bit of advice of this, because you don't know everything, diversify. He not only wants us to invest, but he wants us to spread out our investments. In verse two, he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. Meaning, spread out your risk. You don't know what problems are heading your way, so don't put all of your your eggs in one basket. He says, make sure you're ready for everything or for whatever may come. Right? And any wealth manager is going to tell you this, that there's more security and stability when your investments are spread out in multiple places. Investing it all into one space ties your success fundamentally to the success of that one thing. He's saying don't put all of your eggs in one basket because what happens if you drop the basket? You don't have any more eggs. So spread it out, seven, even eight. Mitigate the risk because you don't know what's coming your way. And he continues this advice in verse 6 when he says, In the morning sow your seed. And at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Right? He says, diversify your investments, but also diversify your actions. He's saying you've been blessed with multiple talents. You've got some side hustles you want to pursue. Great, do it. Maybe one will outgrow the other. Maybe both of them will succeed. Who knows? But he's saying if you're a concert pianist and you spend all of your time only trying to be successful there, what happens if you break your hands? What will you do then? Now he's saying ultimately don't put all you've got into only one thing that has the great potential to let you down. Diversify. And that leads him to this last piece of advice, which is the implicit conclusion of the first two. And it's this, because you don't know everything, just do something. He's saying, don't be foolish in what you do, but also don't be foolish and do nothing. In verses three and four, he says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And, a tree, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. In verse 3, he's saying, there are some basic ways that things work. When clouds are full, it rains. When a tree falls, that's where it is. But in verse 4, he's saying that some people are going to look to these things. 
and they're going to try to figure out all the way that it works so they can beat the system because they don't want to invest in slow growth. But in waiting for the perfect moment to be most fruitful, what ends up happening is that they're never even faithful. They're trying to attain knowledge that they can't have. They're trying to beat the system, but he's saying this is all foolishness. Just be faithful. Put in the work of slow growth. He's saying wisdom is in the value of delayed gratification. And so the preacher's overarching advice thus far is faithfulness with the long view in mind. Be faithful with, you, with what you have and look to the long view. But let's be honest. We can't, we can't stand this advice, right? We can't stand it. It's why people say things like, I can't believe I was overlooked for that promotion when I've been working so hard ever since I got hired three months ago. How on earth could I not get the promotion? We shudder to think that some things take years, even decades before we're going to see the payoff. And see, it's because our culture is one of instant gratification. See, some people are basically saying, why, why, can't, why, why would I take a whole lifetime to accrue my wealth when I can just get rich by heading to Vegas, taking all that I have, and putting it down on black? I could double it. Then I'll just try to double it again. See, too many of us think that money is just going to solve all of our problems. Or if I get what I want immediately, then I'll be happy. But Proverbs 30 says that wisdom is actually found in dependence, not in independence. When we're asking, Lord, don't give me too much because then I'd be tempted to forget about you and not think about you. But also don't give me too little because then I'd be tempted to steal and profane your name. He said, keep me in a place of dependence. Just give me what I need. But we don't like that spot. We don't like dependence. We don't like to be dependent on anyone outside of us. We'd rather risk it for more than be fruitful with what we, or faithful with what we have over the long run and work for the future. We are people who are often going to try and beat the house. But listen, there's a reason casinos don't go out of business. The house always wins. Listen, it doesn't matter if it happens at the slot machine or in your Schwab account. It doesn't matter if you're gambling with Baccarat or Bitcoin. This is foolish living. You can't predict it, so stop pretending like you can. You don't have this knowledge, so stop living your life like you do. The preacher's saying it's just better to put in the work. Cast out your bread. Look for slow growth. Generally speaking, you have to sow and labor now to reap years down the road. Only after many days, verse 1 says. And so he says, you don't know what's going to happen. So don't try to beat the system. Do something. Put in the work and spread out your risk. Whether it be with finances or, or, or discipleship or your workplace, just be faithful and play the long game. And the preacher punctuates this main point that's undergirding this whole passage today in verse 5 when he says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Preacher's telling us that there's a lot of things that we don't and we can't know. And so a faithful life is lived as if that is true. And to live otherwise is to live, it's to buy into the oldest lie in the book. Remember back in the early parts of Genesis, God tells Adam that everything 
is available to him with the exception of one tree of which he must obey him and not eat. But then we just turn the page. We read one page later that the serpent comes along and tells Eve that the reason God doesn't want them to eat is because they'll be like him. In Genesis 3 verse 5, he says that you'll know like he knows. And we know how the rest of the story goes. They disobeyed God. They were kicked out of the garden, but not without a promise of redemption that one day God would make right everything that they'd made wrong. One day, the last Adam would do everything that the first Adam should have done. But see, this tells us, this tells us something. It tells us that our desire to know like God is literally original to our sinful condition. This tells us our desire to know like him is, it's, it's in us, it's there, and it's how we got to where we are, and the preacher's telling us that it continues to cause us to make terrible decisions. Listen, we do not know the work of God who made everything, verse 5 says. And so the preacher's saying, live your lives like that is true. And this is a consistent refrain in the Bible. The preacher's not going on a one-off here, right? The fact that we don't know what's going to happen, and we can't change the outcomes no matter how much we try. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that we don't have the ability to even change one hair on our heads, let alone try to change what's coming ahead. And the Apostle James rebukes folks for assuming that they know what they'll do tomorrow, let alone a year from now, right? He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is saying, it's okay to have plans. It's okay to play the long game, but it's arrogant to think that tomorrow is promised to you because that's knowledge that you do not have. And this is why scores of Christians and churches throughout history have added the words, Lord willing, to their plans. Because they don't want to presume to know something that they are not actually privy to. And so it's this understanding that supports the whole passage. And so we could say that so, so far, the first six verses, the preacher's telling us, you don't know what's going to happen, so be faithful. But in the last four verses, the preacher's saying, you don't know what's going to happen, so be joyful. Right? In verses eight and nine, he tells us to rejoice. And he's saying that part of living a faithful life is living a joyful life. And what I find interesting is that the preacher is saying that a life of faithfulness in the long view and faithfulness in the present is not just, it's not just that it's marked by joy, but it's marked by joy in light of God's coming judgment. Look at verse 9. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. He's saying there are a lot of things that we can't know, but the preacher's telling us that there is at least one thing that we can know for sure. What comes to mind when you think about the word judgment? What comes to mind when you think about what God might judge you for? Does joy even enter the picture? One commentator puts it like this. He says, it seems as though God will not judge them for enjoying themselves too much he will hold them accountable for not enjoying themselves enough. See, the preacher begins this section in verse 7 when he talks about how sweet and pleasant it is to see the sun. Basically saying, life is sweet and the creation was made to be enjoyed. 
But then he builds on that by saying, enjoy it while you can. And at first read, it may seem like the preacher has something against older folks because he talks so much about joy in your youth. Maybe making us wonder if we can't enjoy things once we're older. But that's not what he's doing. Instead, he's building on the theme of what we don't know in the previous passage. And he just is saying that you don't even know if you're going to wake up tomorrow. So make sure you enjoy today. You don't know if you'll be old, so be sure that you enjoy your youth. And he's saying God is going to judge you on whether or not you did that. He says in verse 8 that if you have a long life, great, enjoy the whole thing. But in verse 10 he says just know that youth and pain-free, easy living, that's fleeting. You don't know when it's going to go away. And he says that in verse 8 he says a long life is going to equate to a bunch of terrible days. So make sure that you enjoy the good ones. He's saying, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you should know that you'll be judged for whether or not you enjoyed today. But at this point, let's let's just pause for a second. At this point, some of you may be thinking, well, Matt, listen, I get it. I get it. Okay, that's what the text says. I get it. But the problem is what I see here is a contradiction. So you just said that the preacher wants me to live a life of moderation and faithfulness with the long view in mind. And now you're saying that the preacher wants me to live a life of joy here and now. I can't do both of those things at the same time. But friend, listen, that is not a contradiction. God's commands are never in conflict. A joyless Christian is a contradiction. One pastor in D.C. puts it like this. I've shared this before, but he says, the Christian life is suffering and then glory. It's not suffering and then joy. Joy is found all along the way. See, listen, a meticulously religious person who has absolutely no joy but obeys every command that's put in front of them and calls themselves a Christian, that is a contradiction. Or maybe someone who does everything that they want. They just don't withhold anything from themselves. They have absolutely no regard for God's will. But they call themselves a Christian. That is a contradiction. A person living faithfully in God's will for the long term with an otherworldly joy in the present, that is not a contradiction. That's a Christian. See, culturally, we believe that we find joy in freedom. And generally speaking, we define freedom as the absence of constraints. And so we say joy is found when I get to do what I want to do, when no one else gets to say what I have to do, when I get to call the shots. But friend, listen, what if joy isn't found in the absence of constraints, but in the presence of the right ones? A fish is only free when it's constrained to the water. A bird is most free when it soars through the sky because it was designed to fly. It was made for the sky. And so what if true joy has nothing to do with indulging our worldly fleeting pleasures, but has everything to do with living a wise life in conformity to God's design for us? See, and that's what the preacher's getting at here. That's what he wants us to enjoy when he says in verse 9, to walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. He's saying, enjoy the creation in the way that you were designed to enjoy it. But if we've learned anything 
from the book of Ecclesiastes, if we've learned anything from the preacher thus far, it's that joy and purpose and meaning, these are all vanity if we're only assigning them to things here under the sun. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the design? If I can't find it here, where do I find it? How do I know it? G.K. Chesterton put it like this. He said, if I found a key on the road and discovered it fit and opened a particular lock at my house, I would assume most likely that the key was made by the lockmaker. And if I, find in, uh, if I find a set of teachings and a person in Jesus Christ who so obviously fits the locks of so many human souls in so many times and so many places, it is more likely that those teachings were designed by the heart maker. See, what may feel like a contradiction to your ears is what you know that you want with your heart faithfulness with what's been given to you, and joy all the days of your life. And friend, this is available to us through Christ, through faith in Christ, faith in his finished work, looking not under the sun, but beyond it where he is. Listen, I know you don't want to keep up with the anxious toil of trying to to, to always double it, trying to predict what's coming down the road. I know you don't want that. I know that you want a life of faithfulness and joy. Because it's what you were designed for. Listen, remember back in the garden, Adam and Eve had no problems until they threw off the constraints of obedience to God. They were dwelling in a literal paradise that God created for them to enjoy. And they were living within the bliss of an unbroken relationship with their creator. But they broke that relationship by their unwillingness to abide by the life-giving boundaries provided to them. They were fish that wanted to be on dry land. They were birds that were unwilling to take to the sky. But where the first Adam failed his test about a particular tree, the last Adam came in and said, pin me to it. See, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all that you gave me to do. Jesus, God come in the flesh, God from very God. He humbled himself. He constrained himself to our humanity and did only what the Father gave him to do. He stayed perfectly within the life-giving constraints of God's will. And what does the author of Hebrews say? But he says that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. His life was lived within the constraints of God's will, yet he, a homeless, unmarried man who was persecuted, reviled, and crucified, he lived a life of perfect faithfulness and joy. And it's this gospel, this hope, this teaching that Jesus says he told us so that his joy may be in us and our joy may be full. The gospel is all about joy. The Christian life constrains us, yes, but constrains us to the life-giving constraints of the gospel, not the life-taking constraints of the gospel. The boundaries of God's will are where perfect joy is found. And this is why Paul can say to the Thessalonians, rejoice always. It's why he can tell the Corinthians that God doesn't just delight in your financial giving, but he delights in a cheerful giver. He says, I don't want you to just sacrifice. I want you to do it because I know you'll find joy in it. It's why the apostles Peter and John can be faithfully preaching the gospel, beaten for it. And then in Acts 5, it details to us that they went out singing, rejoicing that they were able to suffer for the name of Christ. It's why Silas and the apostle Paul can be arrested, beaten, and thrown in prison for proclaiming the gospel. 
but folks overheard them singing songs in Acts 16. They're chained to the bottom of a prison and they're singing hymns. What joy is this? It's why James can tell the church in the dispersion to count their trials as joy because it's producing steadfastness in them. And it's why you and I can live lives of great faithfulness and joy now as well. We have access to this life by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ who succeeded where we failed. He was crucified for our sin debt and he rose on the third day so that we would know he did it. And it's faith in this good news that enables us to live lives of joy-filled, long-view faithfulness to the glory and praise of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we...